It's finally here, the first Parsha podcast of the year, the first Parsha podcast of 5782, and I know it's a little bit late, it's already Friday, but the truth is to me it kind of feels like Monday, because we had Rosh Hashanah, and that was Tuesday and Wednesday, and then yesterday, Thursday, felt like Sunday, the beginning of the week, and then I realized it's already the end of the week, and it's time to make the Parsha podcast. And we're at the deadline, it's the very end, and now is our only chance. Now, the truth is also, yesterday was Tzom Gedalia, it was one of the six fast days of the Jewish calendar, and there was a COVID outbreak in my children's school, so all my kids are home and were home, so I want to rush this out, but I want to apologize ahead of time. Forgive me if it is a bit underbaked. I don't want to start off the year on the wrong foot. And worse than doing an underbait podcast is not doing a podcast at all. As you know, we are working on a very impressive street. We want to maintain that street, and we certainly don't want to miss the first week of 5782. Now, there's another reason why we're a bit late, and that's because I made a huge blunder. I made a very big mistake, and that was evident in last week's Parsha podcast. I was under the impression for a very long time last week, that last week was Parshas Nitzavim and Vayelech. It was a double Parsha. The truth is, last week was Parshas Nitzavim, and this week is Parshas Vayelech. But I didn't know that. I didn't check the calendar, and I just assumed that last week was a double Parsha, because most years it is, and this year was not a leap year. And therefore, I uploaded the rebroadcast of Nitzavim and Vayelech together, and I also made a loud and bombastic announcement in last week's Parsha podcast, the new one, that we have a double Parsha, but it was a mistake. It was an error. On almost all non-leap years, the two are bundled together. I just assumed it was the same this year, but it's not true. And in fact, as I mentioned in the past, we have a custom to read the entire Parsha twice twice with the actual text of scripture and once with the commentary, with the translation, I read the whole Nitzavim Vayelech. And then on Friday night, my son came from school with like a sheet that he gets from his teacher in in school. And they have a special sheet for Shabbos. And it has a nice Dvar Torah and the Parsha and a story and a summary of the Parsha. And they had a summary of just Parsha Nitzavim. I'm like, wait a minute. Why is there only a summary of Parshas Nisavim? What about Vayelch? Why did they skip that? And then on Shabbos morning, this past week, I said, you know what? Let me get a head start on the upcoming week's Parsha podcast. Ah, I don't want to be late. It's, it's Rosh Hashanah, the Rosh Hashanah middle of the week. It's a very difficult week. Let's just get a little bit ahead of it this week. So I started preparing for Parshas Hazinu. And then I get to Shul. And I notice that something is amiss. Because when they read Parshas and Sabim and Vayelach in Shul together, then of course they have to spread out the Torah reading over two Parshios. So they don't stop at Shani, Shlishi, Shli, uh, Ravi, i.e., they don't stop at the normal junctures of Parshas and Sabim, the breaks for each Aliyah, for each person who's called to read from the Torah. They're actually spread out over several little portions, so that way you finish two parashios in one reading. And I'm like, why is the guy not reading as if it was a double parsha? 
And then I realized my big blunder. And I think the biggest problem is, is that I recognized in hindsight that last week I said that this was the anti-penultimate podcast, which means the third to last. And I was really proud that I found that word because I Googled, okay, penultimate is second to last. What is third to last? And the answer is anti-penultimate, like anti, like before, before something, antecedent, antediluvian, antebellum, before. So before the penultimate is the anti-penultimate. But it turns out last week was the pre-anti-penultimate or fourth to last. And this week is the anti-penultimate because I made a mistake. So I made a mistake and it's a good lesson to check the calendar before you make any loud declarations on the podcast. But if I ever make a mistake on the podcast, not just the partial podcast, any podcast that I do, please send me an email. I like to correct my mistakes. I like to acknowledge my mistakes when they happen. It's very helpful if I have the feedback of the audience, of my pals, of my friends. Send me an email, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Okay, so this week is Parshas Vayelach. That was not last week. It's this week. It's already Friday, but better late than never. And let us begin. So our parasha begins that Moshe starts to walk. Vayelach Moshe. Moshe goes. He walks. And where exactly Moshe goes, where exactly Moshe walks, is a little bit unclear from Scripture. And if you look at the commentaries... All the commentaries offer a variety of answers to explain where Moshe went, but all of them indicate that whatever Moshe did, wherever he went, wherever he walked, it symbolized the unwinding of Moshe's reign. It symbolized that this is the end of Moshe's leadership. He is no longer the king. He is handing off the baton to Joshua. Moshe is no longer going to be the leader of the nation. So the Ramban, for example, says, Moshe, he finished his message to the populace, and now he's 120 on the day that he's going to pass. He leaves his camp. He was, of course, a Levite. Moshe is a Levite. He leaves the Levite camp, and he goes to the Israelite camp to give them honor and to take leave of his flock. He is now kind of handing in his keys, hanging up his keys, he is going to abdicate his power and he's going to depart from his friends, from his constituency, from the people that he has led since Egypt, since the Exodus, 40 years prior. And just like says the Rambayim, when someone is going to leave their friend, they go and they ask permission, so to speak, to take leave. Moshe went to the camp of the Israelites, to the camp of the people that he's leading, the populace to ask for permission to leave. The Ibn Ezra says that Moshe went from tribe to tribe, visiting every tribe individually to encourage them and to support them and to give them strength and resolve to not be scared, to not be frightened. Moshe is going to die and the nation will feel the leadership vacuum. So he is going to encourage them and say, Joshua will be an able replacement. He will... Do a fine job. Don't worry. Don't be scared. Don't be frightened. You are in good hands. And the Rabban also speculates that the blessings featured at the very end of the Torah, Parshish Vizosabracha, those blessings were actually conveyed now when Moshe went from tribe to tribe, but it was written in a way that seemed to imply that it came later. 
Now, the Chistuni, one of the other commentators, he asks the question, well, if Moshe is speaking to the nation, why does he go to them? Why is it Vayelech Moshe? Moshe went to them. Normally, he's able to summon the people, have them come to him. So he quotes a fascinating Midrash. The Midrash says that Moshe, of course, had a tool to summon the nation, and that tool is the trumpets that he made in the beginning of the Book of Numbers. He made two silver trumpets, and the variety of blows and bursts of the trumpet would indicate if they're moving, if he wants to gather just the elders, if he wants to gather the whole people. Moshe had trumpets that he would use to summon the nation. But in the day of his life, Moshe had to archive those trumpets. There is no power, quotes a verse in Kohelis and Ecclesiastes, there is no power, there is no dominion on the day of death, and therefore Moshe lost the ability to summon the nation. He lost those trumpets, and therefore if he wanted to convey a message to the nation, he had to go to them, he cannot summon them to him. So we see all these interesting descriptions of what's happening here today, on the day of Moshe's passing, he's 120 years old today. It's his birthday. It's also the day that he is going to sign off from the nation and hand off the keys and the reins to Joshua. And he's going and he's speaking to the people. He's going to them. He cannot summon them anymore. Moshe's end as leader is nearing. Now, what else does Moshe lose on this day? So in verse 2 we read, he tells him, I'm 120 years old today. I cannot go out and come in before you. And the Almighty, again, has stuck to his pledge that I cannot cross over this Jordan. Now Rashi tells us that Moshe is 120 years old, but he was still full of vigor. He still had complete strength. He wasn't weakened physically. However, he no longer had the divine mandate to lead the nation. That was taken away from Moshe and given to Joshua. And therefore, he no longer has the permission to go out and to come in before you. The leadership was taken away from him and given to Joshua. Moreover, second opinion, Rashi tells us that Moshe's Torah wellsprings were closed up. So Moshe is kind of losing his grip of power. He no longer has the summoning trumpets. He no longer has the mandate to lead the nation. His Torah prowess is diminished. And also on this day, we read in our Parsha, he writes 13 Torah scrolls, one to every nation, one to be kept for posterity in the Ark or next to the Ark, Rashi brings two opinions. This too is symbolic of Moshe's exit off stage. Previously, Moshe was the Torah giver. He was the one who conveyed the Torah to the nation. When the people had a question, they went to him or to one of his lieutenants. Moshe was still considered to be the source of Torah for the nation. He got it from God and he conveyed it to the nation. But now Moshe's watch is ending and he's got to set up a system for the day after. What happens after Moshe is gone? You no longer have that direct link, that direct Torah link to the Almighty. So you need to have a system of written Torah and oral Torah and the traditions of how to understand the written Torah. So now and only now, it's been 40 years since Sinai, but now and only now the nation receives the actual copies of the Torah scroll. 
And all the commentaries tell us it's from the beginning, Bracious, the beginning of Genesis, all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, the very end. There's a question in the Talmud as to what ha- what's the state of the final eight verses that describe the death of Moshe. But certainly, at least outside of that, everyone agrees that Moshe gives all of that to the nation. They have the entire written Torah for the first time. Moshe can no longer serve as his primary role of Torah giver to the nation. And then we read in verse 14 of chapter 31, the whole Parsha is just chapter 31. It's only 30 verses, our Parsha. The Almighty tells Moshe something really interesting. Behold, your days to die are nearing. Call Joshua. I want Joshua to be privy to partake in the prophecy that I'm going to give you. Normally, when Moshe was summoned to God, it was just Moshe. And now, Moshe's reign is ending. And when he goes in to speak to God, God says, I want Joshua here too. There is a handover. There's a crossover now. The nation is no longer being led solely by you. Joshua's here as well. And therefore, if I'm speaking to you, I want Joshua to be present as well. The Talmud calls this day, which was a Shabbos, this day, the day of Moshe's passing, is a day of joint leadership. The previous times, the previous days, there was one autocratic soul leader, one power. It was only Moshe. Moshe was the only soul leader of the nation. Of course, he had his helpers, he had his aides, he had his lieutenants, but Moshe was the only leader. And then comes Sunday after Moshe's passing, and there's again only one leader, just Joshua, just Moshe's successor. But on that Shabbos, the day of Moshe's passing, there were two leaders. Moshe was one leader, and Joshua was a second leader. And the way Rashi later on in the Torah describes it, there were two speeches given that day. Normally, on the Shabbos, there's only one speech by the one leader. But now, on this Shabbos, there were two speeches, one speech by Moshe and one speech by Joshua. Moshe made sure that Joshua held court on that same day. He gave him a crier. It was common to have a crier, someone who would kind of amplify the message of the leader. Imagine speaking to a whole nation. You need to have someone with a really loud, booming voice to make sure that even the far reaches of the audience can hear what you're saying. Joshua had one of those as well. This day, Moshe is handing over control of the nation to Joshua, his successor. And then we read about the Song of Ha'azinu. Much of our Parsha is setting up what's going to happen in next week's Parsha, the Song of Ha'azinu, and the Almighty tells both of them, both Moshe and Joshua, write down this song and go convey it to the Jewish people, for I want this song to be a testimony amongst the nation. And the Ramban tells us that this commandment to convey the song of Hazin to the nation was given jointly to Moshe and Joshua. Even in the lifetime of Moshe, Joshua is given over commandments by God. He is a prophet of God, even in the lifetime of Moshe. And the way the Ramban lays out what happened, he tells us that Moshe wrote the Song of Hazinu, and Joshua stood with him and read it and watched what happened. Meaning that in conveying the song, it was a joint effort 
between Moshe and Joshua. So we see that really the entire theme of our parsha is that Moshe is going and handing off, so to speak, his leadership, the baton, to Joshua. And what is really nice about this story is that Moshe is not bitter at all. Uh, to the contrary, Moshe is incredibly gracious in setting up Joshua to succeed. In fact, if you remember in the book of Numbers, chapter 27, when Moshe is initially told that Joshua and not his sons are going to be his successor, the verse tells us that God tells Moshe, go place your hand upon him, go support him. And when Moshe actually does that, it says that he placed his hands, plural, upon Joshua. And Rashi there tells us that Moshe went above what he was asked to do. Even though he originally thought that he should have his own sons succeed him, when God pointed to Joshua, he's going to be your successor, Moshe says, okay, you asked me to place one hand on him, give him the support, so to speak, of one hand, I'm going to do it with both my hands. I'm going to do extra just to make sure that Joshua has whatever he needs to have a smooth onboarding to make sure that his transition to power is as seamless and as successful as possible. Now, again, you have to remember that Moshe is still full of vigor. He is still at the peak of his powers, but he is graciously abdicating that power and handing off the reins to Joshua. So it's an interesting question to ponder. Why is Moshe so gracious in his handoff of power to Joshua? Of course, Joshua is a student, and this is Moshe that we're talking about. So maybe it's not really such a strong question. But, you know, we recently had the turnover of power in two places, both in the United States and in Israel. And in both instances, we had the predecessor, so to speak, not really graciously handing over power to the successor, not showing up to the inauguration. And in Israel, there really wasn't a proper handoff. There wasn't that overlap, traditional overlap period where one prime minister made sure that the new one is up to speed. And here we see that Moshe is so gracious in handing over power to Joshua. So I don't think it's such a difficult question, of course, is Moshe the greatest person ever lived? But I had an interesting observation I wanted to share with y'all. Our Parsha starts off with the words, Vayelech Moshe. And Moshe went, and he spoke all these matters to the entire nation. And I was trying to figure out where did Moshe go, and it doesn't say where he went to. Vayelech Moshe, Moshe went. But listen to this. There's another place in the Torah where those identical words appear. Vayelech Moshe. And what's interesting to me is that those words appear at the very onset of Moshe's mission. All the way back in Exodus. All the way back, a long time ago. We're closer to the upcoming Exodus, or to the upcoming reading of the Exodus, than we are to this past year's reading of the Exodus. So Exodus chapter 3 and 4, that's when Moshe is at the burning bush and he spends seven days negotiating with God. He doesn't want to go to save the nation and he raises all kinds of objections. Remember that? Moshe says, well, I'm not worthy and who am I to speak to Pharaoh and they won't listen to me and they won't trust me and send Aaron instead. Remember that. That's what happened. Moshe objected to God's plan to send to go save the nation. But when finally Moshe relented, Moshe said, okay, I'm, I'm in. The very first words that describe the beginning of his journey, Vayelech Moshe, and Moshe went, and he went to Jethro to get permission from Jethro to leave, and he traveled to Egypt. 
Now, both of these verses of Eilach Moshe could have been omitted. You could have read that Moshe went back. He returned, he went back to Jethro. And in our parsha, you could have said that Moshe spoke these words to all of Israel. So both Vayelech Moshe's, the first time it appears, and now when it appears at the very end of Moshe's mission, both really stand out a little bit. And Moshe's mission, the 40 years of leadership, beginning all the way in Egypt to go save the nation and do all the miracles in front of Pharaoh's bloody the sea and sign and all that. The whole mission of 40 years is bookended with these identical words, Vayelech Moshe, Moshe went on the mission. Initially, Moshe embarked on the mission. He had no support. No one even knew who he was. He had disappeared from the nation and he went to the mission. And now, 40 years later, he's still going on that identical mission that God originally set him on. It's one long, continuous journey, and Moshe kept at it. Of course, when he started it, he was a foreigner. He had fled from Egypt decades prior. He was an outsider with no real claim to power. And now, 40 years later, he has complete control, complete command. But in his head... Nothing's changed. It's the same thing. He is still embarking. He's still undergoing. He's still going on that same mission. He hasn't assumed ownership of his position. He hasn't said, well, now it's mine by right. I own it. And I give it up. I cede power when it fits me. He is still the servant of God trying to fulfill the mission that he was sent on many decades previously. And now the mission calls for him to hand off those reins. And that's what he's doing the entire parasha. He tells him, listen, I cannot go and come. The power was taken away from me and given to Joshua. And the whole parasha is Moshe forfeiting power. And the secret lies in Vayelech Moshe. He did not forget where it all started. You have a phenomenon that appears many, many times in history, people start off as idealists and they're full of passion and they want to do good for society. And they start a revolution and they have big, ambitious dreams of changing the world, of changing their country, of changing their nation. And then they get power and power corrupts them and they end up being swayed by the temptations of power and the idealist and the ideologue becomes the tyrant. And Moshe has been on a mission since the first Vayelach. And on this mission, it started off, he just had to get permission from his father-in-law. And now it's culminating by handing it off to Joshua. It's the same person. The experience did not change him. It didn't turn him into a power-hungry tyrant. It didn't make him megalomaniacal. He yielded power graciously. And what does it take to yield power? To be in the same posture now as he was in the very first instance of Ayelach Moshe. He was solely going and walking as a servant of the Almighty to fulfill the mission that he was entrusted with. And he's doing Now, what he did then, what he did for the course of 40 years, nothing for himself, 
solely what he was instructed and commanded to do, a complete servant of God. Now, if you study the story, there's an amazing, astonishing insight in retrospect. You know, we think of Moshe as the most, you know, consummate leader we've ever had. This is Moshe we're talking about, right? If you look at the mission when it started, and you assess how Moshe did, Moshe did not complete the mission. In chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, when God lays out the mission, he tells Moshe, go speak to the elders of Israel. This is when they're still in Egypt. And tell them that Hashem Almighty, the God of your forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he sent me to you, and I'm going to take you out of the servitude in Egypt, and I'm going to bring you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the goal. Moshe has been on a mission for 40 years, and the mission is not yet completed. He stole is on the east bank of the Jordan. He cannot cross over the Jordan. He cannot finish what he started. Moshe has been unceasingly dedicated to this mission for 40 years, but he was not able to complete it. And he wanted to complete it, but God said, no, hand over the baton. You're at the finish line. You could just waltz over the Jordan. It's right there in front of you. And Moshe was told, you can't. And he hands off power graciously. There is a Mishnah, a very important Mishnah at the end of the second chapter of Perkyavos. Lo alecha hamalacha ligmar. It's not your job to finish the job. It's not your responsibility to finish the job. Nevertheless, you cannot shirk your requirement, your responsibility to work. Moshe was given a mission and the mission is now eminently achievable. Finally, after 40 years of grueling work, you can have the payoff of crossing over the Jordan and finishing what you started. And Moshe has been on this mission, Vayelech Moshe, since the very beginning. And now, because he's acknowledging that he is no one, he is just a vessel of God. He is just an implement of God in actualizing this mission. But ultimately, it's God who's in control. And God says, no longer do you have the mandate. Moshe hands it off to Joshua, it's not your responsibility to finish it. You just do what the Almighty sets you on a mission to do. Maintain that dedication to the mission that you started with. Do what you can and stop when you must. There's an amazing teaching in the Talmud book of Chadiga. The Talmud is based upon a verse in the very end of Scripture, Malachi. It says that there's someone who is so holy and so special that people seek Torah from him because he's an angel of God. So the person who's the Torah teacher is like an angel of God. What does that mean? Says the Talmud, if your master, if your Torah teacher is akin to an angel of God, then bakesh Torah mipiu, then you should request Torah from his mouth. But if not, if he's not like an angel of God, then don't ask him for Torah. What this means is that just as an angel 
is singularly focused on a mission, an angel has no other identity aside from that of fulfilling the mission of the sender of the angel, of the Almighty. So too, when you have a Torah teacher, the only Torah teacher you should study from is someone who has that same quality. They are on a mission. They're not there to aggrandize their own holiness and specialness and honor. They're not there to make it a platform for them to get plaudits and credit and the like. They're there to spread the word, to teach the Torah, to be a vessel like Moshe, to convey toward the nation. That's the person you study from. And the ultimate example of this is Moshe. When he started, he was Vayelech Moshe. Where was he going? He was going on a mission that I sent him to do. And for 40 years, he never forgot where he came from. He never forgot where his mandate came from. And as he coalesces more and more power, it doesn't get to his head. He is still the same Moshe, Vayelech Moshe. And easily and gracefully and graciously, he hands off power. What an example of a true Jewish leader. A Jewish leader must be like an angel. Just as an angel is singularly focused on a mission of Ayelach Moshe, that is the way Jewish leaders must behave. And if you see someone who's not like that, don't seek Torah from such a source. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. The first A and Q of 5782. So we mentioned that this whole parsha is describing the crossover from Moshe to Joshua, and there's this time where there's this overlap. We have two leaders for one day. And on this day, the song of Ha'azinu, next week's parsha, is performed. It's like a duet of Moshe and Joshua. They do it together. Now, by my count, this is not the first time that Moshe and Joshua together performed a task. The very first war of the Jewish people in the end of Parashas Bishalach, I think it's chapter 17 of Exodus, you have a war with Amalek. This is even before Sinai. The nation is attacked by Amalek and Joshua is told by Moshe, this is the first time Joshua appears in the Torah, Joshua is told by Moshe, go select for yourself warriors and tomorrow go make war with Amalek. And the next day, we have the very dramatic scene. Moshe goes on top of the mountain, and he has Aaron on one side and Hur on the other side, and they're lifting their hands. And Joshua's in the valley below, engaging in the military conflict with Amalek. And our sages has explained to us that this is a joint effort. There's the physical battle with Amalek, and then there's the spiritual battle with Amalek, and Moshe was doing one, Moshe was doing the spiritual battle, and Joshua was engaging in the physical combat. That's the first joint effort of Moshe and Joshua. They are collaborating. And then we have, of course, the designation of cities of refuge. Moshe designates three cities on the east bank of the Jordan, and Joshua designates the other three cities on the west bank of the Jordan. So to me, I found this very interesting. Almost everything that Moshe does, he does unilaterally. Moshe's the leader. Of course, he has his helpers. He has Aaron. He has, of course, Joshua, who is his aide. But Moshe is the only one that sends to heaven to get the Torah. And Moshe is the only one who's the titular head of the nation leading the other wars. But there are three things. The war with Amalek, 
the designation of cities of refuge, and the song of Ha'azinu that Moshe does in collaboration, in tandem, in concert with Joshua, his successor. And the question is why? Why are these three themes in particular, why do they need to be a joint effort of Moshe and Joshua? Why are these three themes a two-person job? And everything else, Moshe seems to do himself. That's the question. If you have an answer to this very difficult, I must say, question, send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Now, last week, we asked the following question. The verse is talking about a mitzvah that's very close to a person. It's not difficult. It's not in the heavens. It's not across the sea. Beficha ubelvacha. So it's in your heart. It's your mouth to do it. Which mitzvah is that? So Rashi tells us it's the Torah. Torah is not in the heavens. Torah is not across the seas. Torah is within you. But Rashi has a curious statement that had the Torah indeed been in the heaven, there would be an expectation that you must ascend to heaven to get the Torah in that counterfactual world. And the question is, what exactly is that expectation for me to go to heaven? Again, assuming the Torah is in the heavens, why would we be required or what exactly does it mean that we are required to go up to heaven to go get it? So I want to share some answers that we got from the audience. There's an amazing answer submitted by my new friend, Dan. And I'm fortunate to have a bunch of friends named Dan. I don't know why, but me and Dan's just get along. But my new friend, Dan, emailed me an amazing answer, a very creative idea. Insofar as embarrassment is a form of death, when you whiten someone's face publicly, it's like you killed them. And therefore, if you embarrass someone, it's like they ascend to heaven. A person should be prepared to suffer shame and embarrassment rather than sacrifice their principles required to acquire Torah. There is a literal ascent to heaven. Maybe only Moshe did that. And then there's the metaphorical ascent to heaven. And that is something that we can be expected to do. And maybe that's the intention. If Torah was in the heavens, meaning if we had to, so to speak, suffer the shame of being, so to speak, embarrassed to the degree that it could be considered on some level that we were killed, well, then we should be willing to do that. So get the Torah, it's that important. Now, my other friend, Sam, who, by the way, has not missed a single answer in emailing me a single answer to the AMQ yet, he's been incredible and consistent since the very beginning. He wrote to me that perhaps Rashi is saying that the Jewish people need Torah to survive or maybe to even exist. If we didn't have Torah on earth, we would need to retrieve it from heaven. Meaning, if the Torah is so critical for our continuity, it's so indispensable, if that's the only place that you could find liquid water is in the heavens, you'd find a way. Meaning, if it's so critical, it's so indispensable, it's so life-sustaining, then even things which are impossible, you have to make it work. If that's the only way to survive, you'll find a way. Now, this question was actually asked by the Chavetz Chaim, the great leader of the Jewish people in the early part of the 20th century. And he said that this Rashi is teaching us a very powerful framework of how miracles work. What's the anatomy of a miracle? The anatomy of a miracle is that when someone needs to do something, and that's the expectation of them 
by God, they must do their due diligence. They must put their efforts in. Even though it's impossible for them to do it, they have to try as hard as they can. And once a person does all the effort that they could possibly invest in a given venture, and this is what the Almighty wants them to do, well, then the Almighty makes a miracle and makes what is supernatural indeed attainable. If the Torah was in the heavens, the Almighty would expect us to try to get there. Do whatever we can to try to ascend to heaven to get there. And once we've maxed out our abilities, then the Almighty will make a miracle and we indeed would be able to get it. So that's that. I'm so excited that we've actually pulled off this podcast. As of late last night, late Thursday night, I told my wife I have nothing, nothing, nothing to say. Maybe this podcast is indeed a miracle of the likes of what was described by the Chafetz Chaim. But we've done it. It's 5782. We did Rosh Hashanah. It was amazing. I hope everyone had an uplifting and meaningful Rosh Hashanah. I hope everyone's prayers were answered. I hope everyone has an incredible and uplifting 10 days of repentance, culminating, of course, in Yom Kippur, soon approaching. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being incredible and awesome in 5781. And for your friendship and your support throughout the years, my email address is rabbiwobjima.com. Have an amazing and fabulous and splendid and meaningful Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week.